Hi, everybody, and welcome. I'm Joseph Iskia, and today we're continuing our new podcast series with the team at Talking Urology, where we are bringing the literature to life. Today's podcast is, So You're Going to Start a Patient on Androgen Deprivation Therapy. This sounds like a simple topic, but there's more to starting a man on ADT than copying the name on that pen that you have from the 90s. So get ready for the deepest dive on ADT you've ever wanted to take. Today, I'm joined by my special co-host, Renu Eepen. Now, she's a urologist from the Austin and Peter McCallum Hospitals, but Renu, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today, Joseph. Uh, as you said, I'm a urologist at Austin and Peter Mac in Melbourne. I'm also a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. We're doing some exciting research at Peter Mac, in particular looking at the role of lutetium PSMA in treating high-risk prostate cancer. Now, that's fascinating because a lot of those men are going to end up needing ADT. So we'll also be joined by our international thrash metal guitarist, Axel Rose. No, 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 sorry, I was just seeing if you're still paying attention. Our guest is international ADT expert, Axel Mersberger. Well, thanks for invitation. My name is Axel Merseburger. I'm a urologist, chairman of the Department of Urology in Lübeck, northern Germany. Thank you for inviting me to speak on ADT. As usual, we have an exciting podcast for you, which we will go through once we get back from thanking our sponsor. We would like to thank our sponsor, Ipsen, for providing an independent educational grant. Ipsen had no influence on the editorial content. Welcome back. And let's get started by mentioning the two names that always come up in the first paragraph of any discussion on ADT, Huggins and Hodges, or to their mothers, Charles Brenton Huggins and Clarence Hodges. Now let's go back to the year 1941, a time when World War II was dominating world affairs Citizen Kane premiered in the USA, and these two enthusiastic young physicians began to investigate the effects of androgen deprivation therapy on prostate cancer. That last one isn't remembered as widely, but we're on to it today. That's right, Joseph. They began to investigate the effects of ADT by surgical castration or by suppressing luteinizing hormone-releasing hormone production at the level of the hypothalamus with diethylsorbestrol, or DES. Their findings on suppression were revolutionary as surgical and pharmacological castration resulted in dramatic palliation of painful bony metastasis and an unprecedented improvement in quality of life in men with advanced prostate cancer. Now listeners, members involved in this area of medical research are frequently referred to as the greatest generation of researchers and the accomplishments of Huggins and Hodges were globally recognised in 1967 when both were awarded a Nobel Prize for their pioneering work in prostate cancer. For some reason, I haven't been enlisted as a member of the greatest generation yet, but I'm sure my invite is in the post. It must be because I've moved recently. I think you may be waiting a while. Now, back to the greatest generation. Investigations into the beneficial clinical effects of ADT continued at a rapid rate during the 1970s. In 1971, Andrew Scally and his buddies purified the decapeptide gonadotropin-releasing hormone, also known as LHRH, and found that chronic exposure to LHRH-suppressed testosterone by desensitizing pituitary glands through downregulation of the LHRH receptors. This golden generation of researchers were truly ahead of their time. The first randomised clinical trial of ADT found that a monthly depot of the LHRH agonist luprolide was equivalent to 3 milligrams of diethylstilbestrol in reducing serum testosterone to castrate levels and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1984. It was the same year that Michael Jackson released the highest selling album of all time, Thriller. Now, 
as an aside, but the main advantage of luprolide over diethylstilbestrol was a lower incidence of cardiovascular toxicity. Prevention of this adverse event meant that luprolide ultimately replaced DES and orchiectomy as the preferred approach to androgen deprivation. And then over the next 30 years, urologists and scientists tinkered around with different ADT formulae by substituting the sixth amino acid position on luprolide to develop the agents goserolin, triptorolin, and hysterolin, all of which are still commercially available as LHRH agonists today. Let's recap the five recognized indications for ADT. Number one is symptomatic metastatic prostate cancer. Number two, neoadjuvant ADT with radiation to the prostate. Number three, biochemical PSA recurrence after prior curative treatment. Number four, palliation in comorbid men with locally advanced disease. And number five, asymptomatic metastatic prostate cancer. Bang, five, got it. Now, those top two are pretty clear-cut, and there will always be some discussion around what PSA you start in the biochemical recurrent state after surgery or radiation, or in the palliative setting. But one interesting point is whether we need to continue ADT in the advanced castration-resistant prostate cancer setting. Let's hear from Axel what he thinks. Doctors are well aware of uh, mode of action of ADT on uh, GnRH agonists and antagonists, and I think they use it well. However, there was some discussion on stopping it in a later stage of the disease when it comes to castration-resistant prostate cancer. And there's only one trial prospectively looking at this, whether or not you could stop ADT in MCRPC. This is a small 60-patient phase 2 trial published by, by Carsten Uhlmann, a German colleague of mine working in Bonn now who um, just showed the data, the final analysis at ASCO in Chicago at least a couple of weeks ago, showing that in this situation, in the heavily pretreated patients, it probably makes no difference when using abiraterone if you use concomitant ADT or not. However, this is a very small study and all the pivotal trials, all the trials that are published, doesn't matter if it's radium-223, ABI or ENSA, all were with ADT. And when looking in an even earlier setting, we have the approvals in some countries for M0 CRPC, so non-evidence of disease rising PSA, ADT for a while, and then rising PSA again with a fast doubling time, we have the approval of apalutamide and enzalutamide, showing that the metastasis-free survival is prolonged for up to two years in the setting when using those novel hormone treatments. This again underlines the need of ADT and the more intensified ADT, especially when it comes to metastatic disease. And this has shown also at the last ASCO with the release of the Titan data, which is, was simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Kim Chi has shown the data, a randomized phase three trial comparing just classical ADT in primary metastatic prostate cancer, all metastatic regardless of the high volume or low volume compared to ADT in combination with apalutamide. And this resulted in 33% prolongation of overall survival and remarkable PFS benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.48. So this, again, I think justifies the use of ADT, especially in metastatic prostate cancer. Okay, Renu, let's move on. Why is 50 nanograms per deciliter set as the level we consider adequate castration? Well, Joseph, it's actually quite simple. Bilateral orchidectomy is considered the reference standard for ADT as it lowers serum testosterone level well below 50 nanograms per deciliter in less than 12 hours. 
Although it's a simple and cost-effective procedure, it is non-reversible. And as you can all imagine, it carries significant psychological burden in some of our patients. Okay, so some men want the drugs. And as we know, LHRH agonists are associated with a temporary rise in testosterone that can lead to temporal clinical flare with worsening signs and symptoms of the disease. However, the LHRH antagonists competitively bind to pituitary LHRH receptors, rapidly reducing luteinizing hormone and testosterone levels without an initial testosterone flare. Importantly, all the ADT agents have similar side effect profiles and a similar ability to lower serum testosterone to castrate levels. The LHRH antagonist claims to have some reduced cardiovascular toxicity, but we will await the prospective clinical trials to see if this bears out. All right, Renu, so you have started the man on ADT. What are the big early side effects to warn patients about? So Joseph, the big three that we should warn all patients about are hot flashes, loss of libido and erectile dysfunction. About 60 to 80% of men will experience significant hot flashes that can be effectively treated with hormonal agents. In one randomized controlled trial by Irani in the Lancet Oncology Journal in 2010, venlafaxine, which is an SSRI, 75 milligram dose, cyproterone acetate or CPA, 100 milligrams, and medroxyprogesterone, 20 milligrams, all demonstrated improvements within one month. 58 to 100% of men will suffer from a loss of libido. And the overwhelming majority of men taking LHRH agonists will develop some erectile dysfunction. Okay, there's not great, but they're good figures to have. 100%, that's a big number. But still, it's 10% less than the effort I demand of my kids when competing in their Saturday morning sport. So let's take a look at the more chronic adverse events now, which can be conveniently also divided into three categories, musculoskeletal, hematological, and cardiovascular events. So firstly, musculoskeletal, and here we're really talking about the bones. The prevalence of osteopenia and osteoporosis are high in patients newly diagnosed with prostate cancer at a range of around 40%. Within the first year of ADT, absolute bone mineral density loss is around 5%. And this was demonstrated in a study by E.J. Hamilton in 2010 in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology and Metabolism. If bone mineral density significantly decreases, treatment with bisphosphonates are recommended. Weekly oral alendronate appears to be enough to maintain bone mineral density in the non-metastatic population. Secondly, hematological, so we're talking the bloodstream. Men with advanced prostate cancer are predisposed to developing anemia due to hematuria from locally advanced prostate cancer and due to bone marrow infiltration by metastatic disease. Testosterone increases production of erythrogenesis-stimulating proteins. Therefore, LHRH agonists may cause or exacerbate anemia by indirectly inhibiting erythrogenesis. And thirdly, or finally, the cardiovascular system, we're talking about the heart. In 2006, Keating reported increased cardiovascular morbidity and mortality associated with the LHRH agonists in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. The increased cardiovascular toxicity was hypothesized to be mediated through changes in lipoproteins, arterial stiffness, and QT interval prolongation. Joseph, let's ask Axel what side effect of ADT he thinks we're particularly bad at monitoring for or looking after as urologists starting ADT, and specifically what concerns him the most about starting ADT. 
So what concerns me the most, we have on the one hand in localized prostate cancer, the big discussion on erectile function. And as you know, all the stuff with a robot, some advertising of the erectile function will even get better when you cut radical prostatectomy. So we have a lot of discussion on quality of life, man's health. And then once it comes to rising PSA or to metastatic disease, we give ADT and this makes heart flushes, this decreases libido, this basically kills all erection. So I think here the patient information needs to be improved and a well-educated patient, only like a well-informed patient should get ADT and has to agree with the side effects and has to be consulted in the pros and cons on ADT. So I think with regards to metastatic disease counts the most, the underuse of bone protecting agents, since we all know the modern substances and also ADT supports the development of osteoporosis. So I really think, especially when seeing the Bertram Tombard's data first look inside of PEACE 3 trial published at ASCO, where he showed the safety of the combination of encelulamide and radium-223, showing when you combine this with modern bone-protecting agents like solidronic acid or denosumab, you could basically erase skeletal-related events. And we're not doing this, this will rise up to 33%. So Axel has touched on the adverse events we see with ADT. Next, we thought we'd ask him, what is his opinion on stereotactic radiation for delaying the onset of ADT and its associated adverse events? In very small trials, in retro, mostly retrospective series, it has been shown, and we've also worked on this topic, that ADT can be delayed in about 50% of patients in those, I have to say, very small series for about two years. However, when looking at the most robust evidence we have from the Stampede trial, when looking at the data published there by Chris Parker, Lancet 2018, this is like the evidence for treating oligometastatic disease. Again, all patients had ADT and about 18% of the patient even received doxetaxel in the setting concomitant or prior to the radiation. So I think especially in metastatic disease, this has to be a dual, when not a triple therapy with the new data we have now with Enzymed and Titan published in ASCO a couple of weeks ago. Great work, Joseph and Axel. Now let's talk about intermittent ADT. Intermittent ADT, as many of you know, can be effective in reducing the morbidity of ADT treatment, encouragingly for patients concerned about their sex lives. Which I'm guessing is approaching 100%. Yes, Joseph, for them. So studies, for example, Higano in 1996 and Malone in 2005, have demonstrated the return of potency and resolution of anemia with an intermittent ADT regimen. In addition, a meta-analysis by Psy in 2013 demonstrated similar overall and cancer-specific survival, while possibly reducing the side effects such as sexual dysfunction and hot flushes, with improvements to quality of life and physical activity. However, I do think it's important to emphasize that patients who clearly do not benefit oncologically from intermittent ADT are those patients who have symptomatic high burden disease or a high initial PSA level. Good point, Renault. And those who weren't more on this topic can listen to a fantastic podcast called Talking Urology, where we chatted to Dave Quinn about the SWOG intermittent versus continuous ADT trial. Yes, I believe they still talk about that episode in the laurels of podcasting history, Joe. Oh, too right I do, Renault. So let's pivot to discussing maximum androgen blockade. The theory is that 90 to 95% of androgens are produced by the testes and 5 to 10% by the adrenals or the cancer itself. 
Therefore, maximum androgen blockade snuffs out the testis and then antagonizes any of the testosterone that may still be floating around. The impact of adrenal androgens on prostate cancer in men with LHRH agonists is debatable, but our famous researcher Mr. Huggins did demonstrate a clinical benefit of surgical adrenalectomy in men with disease recurrence after orchidectomy. Now, Joseph, how can we achieve maximum androgen blockade? Adrenalectomy. There is nothing this guy didn't think of back in the 40s. You know I have a bronze statue of him in my atrium. I can't believe you have an atrium, Joseph. Sitting room, nave, I don't know, what would you call it? Anyway, maximal androgen blockade can be achieved pharmacologically by combining an LHRH agonist with an antiandrogen. The first generation antiandrogens are flutamide, bicalutamide and nalutamide, which block the effects of adrenal androgens at the androgen receptor. Interestingly, three early randomized studies have demonstrated the advantage of initiating maximum androgen blockade at the time of diagnosis for metastatic prostate cancer. The mean increase in overall survival attributable to maximum androgen blockade demonstrated in these studies was approximately seven months. The important names and journals to remember on the benefits of maximal androgen blockade are Crawford, New England Journal of Medicine, 1989, Junkneat, Journal of Urology, 1993, and Digman in the Journal of Urology, 1997. Apologies to those last two names if I didn't say them correctly. So next we asked Axel. What does he think is the current role of maximal androgen blockade? We have had maximum androgen blockage for years with a combination of bicalutamide. This has changed about five years ago when we saw the data with early use of abirateron makes sense to start early and not to perform maximum androgen blockade, but rather start early, especially in metastatic disease with a novel hormone treatment Following ASCO now, with what you just mentioned, Enzamet and Titan data, we have somehow maximum androgen blockade 3.0, something like a revival of this sitting. So this is really something new again, but not with the use of bicalutamide. So in metastatic disease, you would probably want to start according to latitude stampede, either with abirateron in combination with ADT or doxetaxel. Nowadays, when seen the data on apalutamide in Titan once it's approved. However, I think it is just a metastatic disease, in non-metastatic disease, in private urology practices, still there is a use of bicalutamide and in some patient with very, very, very long PSA doubling time, it may be justified. Yes. Okay, so we asked Axel, is there any role for withdrawing bicalutamide with the progression of castration resistance, or should we just move quickly on to the next agent? So this is very historic. Um, I think this was one of the first uh, publications I worked on 20 years ago on a um, book chapter on withdrawal of antiandrogen, and the evidence is sparse there. It has shown, never shown an overall survival benefit. So in case of metastatic disease, I would urge the colleagues to intensify treatment to use modern concepts in the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer. Now I think it's time we got stuck into the juicy stuff. The next thing that really interests me, Joseph, is a messing trial where there was a large survival advantage for starting ADT early in people with positive lymph nodes. However, it's not something that anyone does regularly. Let's see what Axel thinks. Does he think the messing trial still has a role? Or has PSA testing and newer imaging techniques really superseded any need for early ADT in these patients? So messing trial, I think it still has a role, even though it's um, published years ago. I think it is uh, good evidence we have in this clinical situation 
And we have new evidence just shown in at the ASCO that uh, half a year of ADT concomitant to radiotherapy in a salvage situation prolongs progression-free survival, not yet overall survival. And on the other hand, we had the Shipley data a couple of years ago with bicalutamide for two years, 150 milligrams every day in the situation when radiation was performed in the salvage in the PSA rise setting. So here we have evidence in using just ADT when it comes to PSA rise, when it comes to local recurrence, mostly with a combination with radiotherapy. However, this accounts more for lymphatic disease. This accounts more for primary, very small disease volume, non-detectable with conventional imaging. Okay, listeners, I'm going to change direction here a little. Right on, bold move, especially for a guest host. Hey, you only live once. So there's been an explosion in the literature over the last five to ten years on newer androgen receptor pathway targeted therapies. All right, let's begin by saying that these are very effective agents. Discussing where they fit into the prostate cancer journey is a podcast or two in itself, but let's group them together for today. We have abiraterone acetate, which is an oral CYP17 inhibitor, which prevents extragonadolin testicular androgen synthesis. There is also enzalutamide, which is a super potent androgen receptor antagonist, and please listen to our podcast on enzalutamide. And we have some newer agents, apalutamide, and currently in clinical trials, daralutamide. So let's go big picture here. At the time of recording this podcast, abiraterone, enzalutamide and apalutamide are effective post and pre-chemo in castration-resistant prostate cancer. Enza and apalutamide are effective in non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer and abi, apa and enza, as they're effectively known, are all effective upfront in the newly diagnosed metastatic hormone-naive prostate cancer. So it seems that maximum androgen blockade is back and more maximal than ever. Now, each of these drugs has its own quirks and cautions, and we hope we can cover these in another podcast. Well, we are approaching the end of another podcast, but I think we've arguably left the most important and clinically relevant part of ADT to last, how to monitor and follow up these patients on ADT. I've heard a lot of opinions from a lot of urologists on this subject, and everyone seems to vary a little with their follow-up protocol. Joseph, a penny for your thoughts on this? You've probably overpaid there, Renu. But I can tell you that I do follow the EAU guidelines and I'll try to summarise them in the following five points. Firstly, measure PSA and testosterone levels one month after starting ADT. You need to assess PSA response and whether testosterone reaches castrate levels. I then do a PSA level every three to six months to monitor for disease progression and determine whether castrate resistance status develops. Thirdly, I check the haemoglobin and creatinine for anemia and renal failure, either from disease or from adverse effects or drugs. I do a DEXA scan in men at high risk of developing osteoporosis before androgen ablation. I will do a haemoglobin A1C, a fasting glucose and a lipid profile, as well as take their blood pressure, I know, that does sound a little crazy, at baseline and every three months to monitor for metabolic syndrome, diabetes and hypercholesterolemia. And last but not least, a high five for staying on the follow-up plan. So this podcast has been a thunderbolt of information on everything you need to know about ADT. And to summarise, here are the six fast facts on this ADT podcast that we've covered over the last 20 minutes or so. One, Huggins and Hodges were globally recognised in 1967 when both were awarded a Nobel Prize for their pioneering work in ADT and advanced prostate cancer. Two, acute adverse events include hot flashes, loss of libido and erectile dysfunction. Three, chronic adverse events are classified as musculoskeletal, hematological and cardiovascular events. Four, 
in patients with metastatic disease, ADT is efficacious with a mean expected response duration of three years. Five, I have an atrium in my home. Six, there is level one evidence demonstrating that abiraterone acetate and enzalutamide, as well as the newer agents apalutamide and darolutamide, are going to be associated with improved overall survival compared to placebo and bicalutamide respectively. And I think that's a wrap on ADT for the moment. Hopefully you've learned a thing or two about starting and monitoring patients on ADT and thanks again for listening. And a special thanks to Axel Merzberger who's shared his invaluable expertise and insights with us today. And thanks to you as well, Reno. It's been a pleasure. Now, I just want to give a shout out to a podcast that you're doing with Declan Murphy. What is it about and how can we access it? Thanks, Joseph. That's right. Declan Murphy and I have launched GUcast from our studio at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. So it's a podcast series where we love talking about all things GU. We really focus on genitourinary cancers, but we're open to all urological topics, uh, really. Recently, we've been talking with our colleagues around the world to see their, how they're coping in the COVID pandemic. And it's really been fascinating to hear what the great minds think about how we should be managing GU cancers during this time. So please check us out. You can search for GUcast on Spotify, Apple Cast, Pocket Cast, or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to us, drop us a like, or as ever, we'd love to hear your feedback. That's excellent, Renu, and good luck. So you can get all our podcasts, The Talking Urology, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Twitter, where you can follow us at Talking Urology. And remember to send all feedback to feedback at talkingurology.com.au. You've been listening to Joseph Iskia, Renu Epen, and Axel Merzberger. Written by Niall Davis, Mark Quinlan, and Joseph Iskia. Produced by Joseph Iskia and Cara Webb. So you're gonna... The Practical Urology Podcast for those who love urology. Proudly brought to you by Ipsen.